First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 is the morning text for Pastor John's sermon. Please turn your Bibles there. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you haven't brought one today. First John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we saw it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which is with the Father and was made manifest to us, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing this, that our joy may be complete. Let's pray together before we begin. So plainly, so bluntly, you said, Lord Jesus, my sheep hear my voice. And they follow me. And I give them eternal life. Oh God, I pray that people will hear your word and thus confirm that they are sheep. In Jesus' great name, amen. We begin a series today on the first epistle of John, which will carry us for 21 weeks in 1985, Lord willing. And I invite you to study along with us as you read those texts before we preach on them. I'm not going to talk a lot about the authorship of this book, even though there are some very crucial implications about affirming that it was the Apostle John, which I do affirm. Here are the five things that I want to draw out of these four verses with you, and then we'll go back and we'll take each one of them and unpack it. First, Christ, our life, has eternally existed with the Father. Christ, our life, has eternally existed with the Father. Second, Christ, our life, was manifested in the flesh. Third, through Christ's incarnation, John and we have obtained fellowship with the Father and the Son. Fourth, Therefore, John makes his proclamation of Christ the foundation of human fellowship. And fifth, John longs for the fullness of joy that comes by drawing other people into the joy that we have in the fellowship with God and the Son. Now, we'll go back now and take each of those. But before we do that, let me try to show you the overarching river that I see here. There's a fountain or a spring up in the mountain, and it is the eternality of Christ with the Father. And from that spring flows the river of this text and all that's in it. And the ocean into which it opens is the anticipated joy of being in fellowship with God's people and with the Father and the Son. What I'd like to do is just walk along this river with you, and at five of its key points or turns or pools, drink with you. 
and hope that the water of God's word at each of those places will refresh and strengthen your allegiance to Christ and will intensify the desire and the longing that you have with John to fellowship with the Father and with the Son and with the people of God. So let's take them one at a time and drink. Christ, our life, has eternally existed with the Father. Verse 2, the life was manifest and we saw it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifest to us. Now note two things from this verse. First, Christ is simply called the life. When it says the life was made manifest, we know it means Christ was made manifest. He's the one who appeared, became visible, became touchable. John 5, 1 John 5:11 says, God gave us eternal life. This life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who has not the Son has not life. So it's very natural that John should identify Christ with the life. Because when you have fellowship with the Son, you have life. When you don't have fellowship with the Son, you abide in death and in darkness. So when he says the life was manifested, he means Christ, who is our life from all eternity, is manifested. But let me make explicit the second point, this eternality. Notice it says in verse 2, the life was manifest and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Now, that's still Christ. The basis of our eternal life is Christ's eternal life. And I think that's the best commentary on the first phrase of the book which is an ambiguous phrase in itself. When it says, that which was from the beginning, this phrase, from the beginning, is used five other times, I think, in this book, never referring to the beginning of time, like it does in John 1. But I think that's what it means here. And my basis for saying that is, first, verse 2, where Christ is referred to as eternal life, and secondly, the clear, substantial parallel with the first four verses of the gospel, where it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In other words, Christ, if you picture this river in this spring here, Christ in the beginning is not a part of the river. He is the spring. He was there at the beginning when everything got started in creation. Through him, Hebrews says, all things were created. He is not, the Jehovah's Witnesses notwithstanding, he is not a creature. He is one with the Father, eternally existing as the, as the ever-begotten Son of God. And so the most fundamental assertion of this text is that Christ, our life, eternally existed with the Father. And I think it ought to occupy a large share of our meditation and prayer to reflect on the majestic fact that the Lord we worship never had a beginning. Second... Christ, our life, was manifested in the flesh. Verse 2 again. The life was made 
manifest, that is, became visible, appeared. Now, some interpreters attempt to spiritualize this and say, well, we all have seen Christ. We pray, open our eyes, Lord, that I may see Jesus. Is that all that John meant? Well, you know it's not because of what verse 1 says. Verse 1 says, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. Now, the reason he says that is to make clear I am not merely talking about a spiritual idea. I'm talking about an incarnate God, man, Jesus Christ. So the point two here is incarnation. The eternal son took on flesh and became a man. Now, this is a great stumbling block. It was a stumbling block in John's day. For example, 2 John verse 7 says, Many deceivers have gone out into the world, men who will not acknowledge the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. They won't acknowledge it. It's offensive. It's a stumbling block to them. And today, in our own day in England, just a couple of years ago, you know the book was published, The Myth of God Incarnate. It is a stumbling block. It has been in every age that the Son of God, who eternally existed with the Father, could take on human flesh and become one of us. Now, I don't think the main reason that it's a stumbling block is because it is intellectually difficult to handle the mystery of two natures in one person. That's a problem. It's hard. It's a mystery. I don't think that's the main reason people reject it. I think the main reason people reject it is that if it's true, then every human being on the face of this earth has to obey this one man. It's the particularity. It's all right if I preach Christ as a kind of spiritual power, but as soon as we preach a particular man who was Jewish in a particular place, Nazareth, dying on a particular cross, and fingering particular sins in your particular life, we back off. It's the particularity of Jesus, and not this, but this kind of Jesus that is offensive to us, and we reject it. Because if it's true, everything he said is universal law, and if it's true, everything he did was perfect, and if it's true... The particularity of his life and word have flown out into a particular book that makes absolute claims over every other book in the world. It's offensive, this teaching about the incarnation of the eternal Son of God. It's offensive because when God becomes a man, he strips away all the pretenses of man to be God. We can no longer do our own thing 
like we could if we were gods. Because now this one man, one Jewish man, requires that you do what he says. Period. We can no longer pose as self-sufficient because this one Jewish man says, you're all sick unto death with sin and you have to come to me for healing and nobody else. It's offensive because this one Jewish man says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and strips us of our own sufficiency to find our own life. When God becomes a man, man ceases to be the measure of all things, and this man becomes the measure of all things. And it is offensive. It is simply intolerable to the rebellious heart of men and women. The incarnation is a violation of the Bill of Human Rights written in the Garden of Eden by Adam and Eve. It is authoritarian, imperialism, despotism, usurpation, absolutism. Who does he think he is? God! And that's why John has made the Incarnation the touchstone of doctrinal orthodoxy and spiritual authenticity right from the beginning. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. But every spirit which does not confess Jesus is not of God. Only the Holy Spirit can conquer the rebellion of the human heart that does not want to bow to this one Jewish man and allow him to dictate for us what is good for us. And since it's only the Holy Spirit that can crack through that stiff-necked rebellion and brazen forehead that is natural to every human being, therefore, the heartfelt confession of the Incarnation and the particularity of Christ can be the test of whether you are born of God doctrinally and whether your spiritual experience is authentic. Third, through Christ's incarnation, John, he says, has obtained fellowship with the Father and with his Son. Now, the key word here is fellowship. So let's zero in on this and ponder what this means. Koinonia. Fellowship. You all know what it is, I think. If you were to write out definitions, most of them, I think, would be right. Here's the way I would put it. It's a personal experience of sharing something significant in common with others. Personal experience of sharing something significant in common with others. It's the pleasure of being in a group where you see eye to eye where you have common affections for common values. It's why one of the greatest pleasures of my life is to be on a team with Tom and Steve and Dean and Shar and Rick and Rob. What massive commonality exists in our theology. It is so wonderful. And it's what gives to Christian marriage root and fiber and fruit. 
To say that you now have fellowship with God is to say that you have come to share his values, right? There's no other way to fellowship with God if you have different values. If you don't see eye to eye with God, if you don't believe what God believes, love what God loves, delight in the fellowship of God, it's all over. There is no fellowship without that. Very practically, here's what I think it means from day to day to fellowship with God. I think it means three things. It means calling up repeatedly into your mind scripture that you have memorized. If you don't memorize scripture, that is, if you don't have ready at hand during the day the word of God, he can't talk to you. God only talks through his revealed word. If you don't know that word, you can't fellowship with him. Because fellowship is a two-way give and take. So the first step of it is to hear the word of the Lord. To remember a sentence from a sermon. To memorize a verse and carry it with you through the day. And bring it into a situation. And then, secondly, pray. You offer your word up to the Lord and say, Lord, help me apply this. Help me to hear your warning or your promise or your guidance. And apply it in this situation the way I should. And then thirdly, in the strength of that harmony and union and fellowship, you walk in the light and obey him. So, God speaks in his word, you speak to him in prayer, and together you move into life and obey. That's walking in the light, that's fellowship with the Father and with the Son. And John knows here that this best of all gifts comes through the Son, the incarnation of the Son. He says in chapter 2, verse 23, No one who denies the Son has the Father. And he who confesses the Son has the Father also. So if you anticipate fellowshipping with the Father, you must welcome the Son. And through the Son's coming, dying, atoning, offering himself as the friend of sinners and tax collectors, when he does that, the opportunity is given for us to reverse our priorities, change our values, start seeing eye to eye with him, come into fellowship with him and through him into fellowship with the Father. So every time the gospel is preached or every time Jesus Christ is placarded before a people like this or when you placard it before your family or at work, an opportunity is created for those who hear to come into fellowship with the Son and with the Father because it happens through the hearing of the word of Christ. Fourth, therefore, John makes the proclamation of Christ the basis of his fellowship with other believers. Now, the focus shifts here to horizontal fellowship and its basis. Notice how he states it in verse three. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, here's the key conjunction. Always underline these key conjunctions. So that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, to get what that verse is really saying about human Christian fellowship, let's read it backwards. Go like this. Since our fellowship is with the Father 
and with the Son, the only way that we can cultivate and preserve fellowship with other people is by telling them what we hold sacred about Jesus Christ. Because if they don't agree, it's all over. Now, at Bethlehem, we talk a lot about the three priorities of commitment to God in worship, commitment to each other in nurture, and commitment to the world in witness. And what I want you to see here is how this text makes so plain the connection between priority one and priority two. John says, I want priority two to happen. I want fellowship with my readers. How can I get it? I'll tell them about Jesus and what I know of him, what I've seen, what I've heard, what I've touched. Because if we don't share that, then our sharing is insignificant. Now, there are so many implications of this teaching for us at Bethlehem. I want to uh, stress three of them, but before I do, notice, when John wants to cultivate fellowship with a group of people, he writes a letter filled with theology. Christology, if you don't mind. Or take Paul. When Paul wanted to cultivate a mission fellowship at Rome, which would fold him in and send him out to Spain. What did he write? Romans. Is that what you would do? Now, let's think about the implications of this. Implication number one. The great danger of the contemporary charismatic movement, with all the value that I see in it, is that they tend to base the unity of fellowship upon experience and not theology. That's not the biblical way. And it's going to backfire. It does backfire in two ways. One is that the, the experience can start to dry up without deep roots in theology. And the other way, which is worse, is that the experience can be maintained and a heretical theology can be developed to gloss over the differences of genuine theology. So the first application is to just plead with us to delight in experience of God. Uplifted, charismatic hands, if you please. But on the basis of a mighty shared theology. Second implication. Does this text not teach that Christians should not marry unbelievers? I mean, that's taught very plainly in 1 Corinthians 7. But let me just state it so that all you young people will have it lodged in your mind. Marriage is for fellowship. And you can't have it at the level that matters if he or she isn't a believer doesn't see eye to eye with you about Christ, doesn't esteem him. So don't marry an unbeliever, please. Third, it's a great and sad irony to me 
that as a conference, a Baptist general conference professing to cherish the Bible, we have the reputation of trying to preserve unity by not, not by exalting the glorious doctrines of Scripture, but by avoiding them. John, when he wanted to preserve and cultivate the unity of fellowship, got theological. When the Baptist General Conference tries to work and preserve unity, it gets a-theological. And we are paying. God willing, we at Bethlehem with many other churches will go a different way. We will be explicitly theological. We will lay our Calvinistic cards on the table with Christian hedonism to boot. Because the last thing I care anything about is attracting or keeping members by concealing the distinctives that give me fire for God. Who cares? It is deadly to reduce biblical theology to the lowest common denominator of acceptability. It is the death knell of worship and orthodoxy and missions and morality and growth, and we are in trouble in the BGC in every one of those areas. Let's be like John, verse 3. What we have seen, what we have heard, we Proclaim. Why? So that we can have fellowship. Don't do it the other way. Don't reverse those. Here's what we believe about Christ. Do you cherish it? If so, come. Fifth and finally, the reason John writes his testimony to Christ is because he longs for the fullness of joy that comes when others share his delight in his fellowship with God. Verse 4, And we are writing this, that our joy may be complete. If you've got a King James, it says, your joy. All the modern versions say, our joy, and I think that's the better Reading, And, of course, at a church which is based on Christian hedonism, it is no shock or surprise that the writer, the holy apostle under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, should say, what I'm after in this letter is my joy. Of course, the joy is first in the fellowship with God and in his Son, But then when you start to experience that, you get hungry for something more. Not that there is any more than God, but that there is more of God when you fellowship with God with others. So when John says, I want fellowship with more believers so that my joy can be made full, what he's saying is, the joy that I have in fellowshipping with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, 
can be multiplied, expanded, increased in God when I see him reflected in the faces of many other rejoicing people. If that weren't true, the desire for fellowship would be idolatry. To crave fellowship in addition to the satisfaction of God? No, as a means to the joy that we have in God. This is the very essence of what I mean by Christian hedonism. The doctrine that says it is not only permissible, it is mandatory that we pursue our own happiness in the holy happiness of other people. Now, picture this situation. You make it your aim to bring a friend of yours into fellowship with God. But then you say in your heart, but whether they make it into fellowship or not is a matter of indifference to me. You would be evil. Because God does not intend you to be indifferent to the good that you pursue. He intends for your heart to be in it. He intends for your joy to be in it. It is a strange, strange thing that this doctrine is opposed. He has commanded us, delight yourself in the Lord. He has commanded you, count it all joy when you lay out your life to bring other people into the fellowship of God. If you try to live while denying your own quest for happiness, you become an offense to God. Because God has told you, come to me for joy. Delight yourself in me. Go hard after me. Delight yourself in the joy that comes from bringing other people into fellowship with me. The opposite of this doctrine that teaches that it is wrong for a Christian to pursue his own happiness is a devastating doctrine to Christian morality and worship. This doctrine is an insult to God who commands that we delight in him and that we count it all joy to lay down our lives to draw others into the joy that we have in fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Shall we pray? Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus Christ, we praise you that you have existed from eternity in the fellowship of the Trinity. We stand in awe of your never-beginningness and never-endingness. And Lord Jesus Christ, we bow before you in all lowliness, acknowledging that you, the Jewish God-man of Nazareth, are imperially authoritative over all human beings. You have a right to tell us what to do, what not to do in every area of our lives, and we submit to that right. And Lord, we delight in the gift of your fellowship, that you came to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners and laid yourself open on the cross for us. We embrace you and fellowship with you and through you with the Father. And O oh Lord Jesus Christ, we would have no other basis for the fellowship of our church 
than your exalted sovereignty. We don't want to water you down nor conceal any of your strange works in the hope of attracting a few more non-committal members. God forbid. Oh, that theology in all of its truth from Scripture might be the foundation of our harmony, and so may it be deep and powerful forevermore. And, Father, the consummation of our joy would be if you would grant us to be the means of folding others into the joy that we have in fellowship with you. Perform it, I pray, in the power of your Holy Spirit, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.